Aloha, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the season finale for our Undoing Radio Season 3. Um, season 4, I can tell you, will, in fact, exist. <laughs> um, in fact, if you'd like to be a guest, uh, I will have up a list of whatever's left of episodes um, that I put a call out for guests for members of OurUndoing.com. Um, so whatever members of our undoing.com didn't take is what's left over for topics. It's going to be a multi-topic season where I just talk to regular old folk, kind of like what I've been doing here. So go to our undoing.com. You'll see right there on the front page will be, uh, the spiel <laughs> with a list of, uh, potential episodes for season four, or if more come to me than 10, then by the time you hear this, there will be more than that on there. Um, in any event, pick a topic. If you want to come on the show, chat for a half hour or more with me about it, uh, then contact me. Jeremy at OurUndoing.com. Or better yet, why don't you uh, consider becoming a member? There's monthly membership. There's a lifetime membership. In the grand scheme of things, it's uh, pretty cheap to get a lifetime membership. And there is a wealth of audio, video, and essays uh, geared toward your undoing, <laughs> your unraveling, your waking up through understanding. Members keep the website going, and members keep this show going and keep it commercial-free except for this. I guess if this counts as a commercial, uh, then, then this is pretty much all you get, right? So that's pretty good by way of advertisements. Um, all right. Now, let's get on with breaking down the sacred. What did we hear this season? How did we listen? What did we hear? Uh, did you notice a difference between how westernized, well, I mean, I guess we're all westernized in the grand, grand scheme of things, but the purely westernized people on this show, uh, how... They talk about the sacred versus people who are still meshed in their native cultures. So heart people, brain people. Have you noticed a difference in the way we approach the sacred in the way that we know it um, or understand it or even have a certainty or an uncertainty about it? Have you noticed any differences? Um, have you noticed similarities? Have you noticed just how interesting it is? Or maybe it is just to me. I don't know. But uh, it is. It, it seems like it would be more than just me who would find it interesting that this one tiny little word that we all take for granted uh, as understanding the meaning um, has so many different meanings to different people and can be gotten at through so many different directions, can be completely misunderstood from certain perspectives, and how... Um, you know, not only are we using the same language and often not describing the same thing, but we're also sometimes feeling something that we attribute to this little word sacred, you know. Um, and so it's perhaps the case that we are misidentifying our feelings sometimes um, because we've already got this definition. We've already got the word, this word that we can attach the feeling to. And the word has the definition that our culture, that our parents, that 
even our own experience has brought us to. And if the sacred is describing something that is autonomous, that is in and of itself real, um, or has a truth to it all its own, untouched by the relativity of our perspectives, then do we see how our miseducation can uh, give meaning to the feeling and perhaps erroneously. And how would we know in this world that tells us everything is relative or whatever you believe, whatever you think is correct. All of your subjectivities are in fact uh, the matrix that is so-called reality. There is no there there. There is no absolute truth there's only absolutism and dictatorship, and and if we want to do away with that, then, well, we just have to uh, understand the truthier truth that whatever one believes is reality. If that's untrue, how will we know? If we've built a belief system up around that and fortified it with words and given those words definitions and applied our feeling of uh, from actual experiences to those definitions, to those words, if we've attached all this, then in a sense we have built a virtual reality. But it's virtual. It's, um, it's built on a mistake. But to say that is completely taboo in this culture because to say that is to be considered judgmental or authoritarian. And for good reason, because judgmental people and authoritarians uh, would also say the same thing, right? Or something similar, but um, they wouldn't mean it because they wouldn't know how to mean it. They would mean it as in my absolute truth. I am the absolute truth, which is how many of us mean the word sacred. What's sacred to me? My sense of the sacred. My journey with the sacred. Right? This is something Teokas and Ghost Horse points out. And so who is the dictator? Who is the judgmental one? The fact is, to do a show like this, I have to frame the question as in, what is your sense of the sacred? You know, when you talk to a guest, what is it that you believe? What is it that you think? What is it that you understand? And in the realm of mind that we have built, in the society that we've built there within, uh, this makes sense, right? Like, this is how we talk to each other. This is how we know the world, very generally speaking. And so it makes sense to do this. Uh, if we're going to understand even the politics of calling something sacred, like we're seeing here in Hawaii, uh, because... You know, Mauna Kea, of course, as we've heard time and again on this show, is considered sacred to Hawaiians or Hawaiians. Why Hawaii, but not Ho Hawaiians? I don't know. That's another, that's another topic for another time. But uh, in any event, to Hawaiians, at least as far back as the arrival of the Tahitians, right? Uh, there is the sense of sacred sites. Now, of course, uh, our friend Willie tells a different story, tells the story of prior to the Tahitians, where the sense of sacred came from within. 
And he calls it an evolution from it to come within and then to extend without. And so in a sense, I guess Tahitians sort of taught that in a way. I don't know if he would say taught that, but I don't know that it was a gift of knowledge or just something that came with the lording over of the people when uh, the Tahitians set up their governance. But whatever, you know, whatever the particular politics of that time, um, it strikes me as really coherent the way that you compare together what Willie says about the sacred uh, with what Lahua says about the sacred. So Lahua's story picks up after Willie's family story. And you can see the progression of how how the sacred extends from inside to the outside. And I think you can snugly fit in what Teokasen Ghost Horse says about the sacred as ceremony. That's sort of the connective tissue, in my opinion, uh, between what Willie talked about and what Lahua talked about. Ceremony implies you doing something out in the world, but it's uh, from inner instruction, if you will, or from being in the flow, from choiceless choice, not from free will choice of a thinking brain, but from being immersed within consciousness, consciousness at large, and the self-identity of consciousness at large coming through, lighting the vessel, if you want to call it that. I don't know what words, what fancy schmancy words you want to put on that, but um, let's not get trapped in them. So now compare all of that, which has a natural flow to it, which smacks of uh, truth, of a way things work with the Western sense of just saying words. And because I said those words, you just kind of have to believe me. So when someone online says, um, oh, a telescope would be the crowning jewel of Mauna Kea, I considered telescopes sacred. Um, I consider science sacred. Do you? I don't think you do. Because as Kayoni said, the sacred is that which you would die for. I mean, I don't know that that's the whole definition, but um, I can certainly see that being a part of the definition, at least in terms of the sacred being uh, out there in the world, being that mountain, being that which one holds dear, so dear, so close, that it is an extension of them through heart, not through some psychological dysfunction, but through heart, an extension of the person, an extension of the person's culture. And they are an extension of that mountain as well. It, it works both ways. And so when you see something that the Western mind wants to call a natural formation, uh, wants to talk about the geological blah-bitty-blah of it, and all of that, uh, when you don't see it in those technical, allegedly objective but not really terms... Objectifying, yes, but not objective. There's no such thing, uh, at least how we use the word. But it is objectifying um, and therefore disconnected, therefore a product of the separate self-sense. How can we say that this is the same sacredness or application of the word sacredness as those who are interconnecting 
with the mountain, who are an extension of the mountain and the mountain an extension of them. They would die for it because it's them. And asking for proof is just racism. Comes from a conquest mentality. It means I don't believe you. So show me the proof that you've ever had something up there that I can understand. Temples, churches, um, traces of older civilizations up on that mountain. And really, this gets into the problem of Hawaii being a state, right? Being considered a state, because then you can ask for evidence or proof. Um, if Hawaii was its own sovereign nation, you wouldn't have that ability or you wouldn't have the quote-unquote right. You wouldn't have any say in the conversation. You would just respect what you're being told. And although Hawaii is not a sovereign nation, it is its own culture and its own way of being. There is a way of being here. And um, if you're attracted to Hawaii, Hawaii, then... Why would you want to change it to be the thing that you're not attracted to? To essentially be an extension of you, or at least of your society, of your pop culture. Why would you want to be a cancer here? And I mean, extend this to everywhere, right? Like, this isn't just an issue in Hawaii. It's just, I live here, and so in my selfishness, it's in front of my face, and I can... I can see it and talk about it and talk to people about it. But this is the dilemma everywhere we go. Is that there is a uh, a sacredness to life itself. To the interconnecting with nature. To us. And if we're not connected to that, then it's utopian or it's an ideal it's that which we place outside ourselves and judge or uh, say we want that but never obtain it. Got to have it um, instead of be. Be it. Because the being means not being you. It means not being the westernized brainiac. And in theory, because <laughs> the westernized brainiac loves theory, many of us would love that which is why we moved to a place like Hawaii. But actually, that tends to be a form of denial of who you actually are, which means that who you actually are will come out, and hence terraforming to your culture with mini-marts and telescopes and all of that. Conveniences, what we call conveniences, which are really poisons, right? Fast food, GMOs, and... Actual poison <laughs> in our in our food. Um, sure, we'll we'll take it. We'll transform it. So whatever we say about the sacred, whatever meanings we ascribe to it, if they are used as a political argument to get what we want, host culture be damned. In this case, uh, then it's not reflecting anything other than our own selfishness. It's not coming from any connection with the natural world, with the flow of consciousness within which we're embedded. It has nothing to do with truth, with a capital T. Saying my truth, my truths, 
well, this is my truth. How dare you? Um, when really what you're doing is just sort of using words to make an argument to get what you want. Who has time for this anymore? This thinking, this mind of ours, is the cancer, is the very thing that uh, is trying so desperately to destroy itself. Uh, And, of course, that comes up in our destruction of the planet, of our poisoning ourselves, of our uh, genocides, of our interspecies genocides, of, you know, all the mass extinction stuff, and so forth. And, you know, that's the Debbie Downer side. I mean, the, the, it's actually a positive in disguise. I mean, lies want to reveal themselves, right? We always say this. The truth wins out in the end. You bring the lies to light. And with psychology, we do this, right? The repressed uh, aspects of ourselves, we try to bring them to light so that we are free. Well, what happens when the mind itself does that? What happens when the mind is so wrong, so off course, so disconnected and out of flow with the consciousness in which it is embedded that it cannot course correct? It must simply be silence for truth to be the case, for that interconnecting nature to be the case, for the dysfunctional brain self to dissolve into heart self and for all of that to dissolve into nothingness which just happens to be pure consciousness. I mean, hit the reset button, right? If we can't do it, mind at large does. Everything about us, everything about going off course, nose diving, just in life, in other examples of life, uh, brings you to your natural conclusion, which is a conclusion. And so we're off course and we're steering ourselves to our natural conclusion. The beauty of it is a horror show, unfortunately, as it plays out for us. This doesn't mean you and I have to be a part of that horror show. I mean, sure, we have to live through it. (laughs) We have to play our part, right? But internally, we don't have to be that show. We don't have to have the attachments to that show, which is a dangerous thing to say because one may hear that and think that it is a decision that we may make in our lives and um, such a decision would actually be sociopathic or psychotic. It's not a decision. It's an understanding that does away with the false, with the false mind, even as we live in the machinations of the society that breathes life into this mind or perhaps mind into this life. And now let me leave you, well, with two things. The first is a reminder that if you want to uh, be a guest on season four of our Undoing Radio, go check out the topics uh, on the front page at ourundoing.com and drop me a line and let me know. The other is just want to pick up on something that I began to talk about with Carol in the last episode, me lovely wife, um, as we wrap up our season on the sacred. There was a question that I asked, which is essentially 
Um, is the sacred constricted to the limitations of the brain? Is it a human invention or is it limitless, unrestricted truth about which we confabulate, about which we imagine, about which we try to relate to instead of directly perceiving or being? Because if the sacred is of the limitless, then how can it ever be understood by our limited societies? Especially those societies who believe that all mind, all consciousness, exists exclusively in the brain as a bunch of neurons and the cells and the such. I mean, basically, we've got, um, you know, the two minds we've been talking about, the brain culture, which is... um fancies itself rational and logical and is sort of, even as it's slowing off materialism in terms of its physics, um, it sort of sticks to materialism when it comes to consciousness. It's got to be a product of biology. So that's kind of a conversation stopper there. But with the heart cultures, you know, they commune with the sacred. They are opened up by the sacred. They are given visions. They're given dances. They're given songs. These dances and songs do something in the world. They're not just pop songs. They're not just break-into-electric-boogaloo dances. And there I've dated myself. Uh, <laughs> they actually mean something. A scientist might look at them and wonder how they work. What are the mechanics? They would want to make it a mechanical thing. Um, how is A producing B? How are these moves producing this effect in the world? How is this song producing this effect in the world? How is this ha happening mechanically? And maybe they'd be given an answer. Maybe they, by observation, you'd have to see something. So they would see something. But that seeing something is an illusion at the end of the day because the truth is they got it in a vision. <laughs> they got it by communing with the limitless. All sense is laid on a foundation of nonsense in this world. And we forget that the more sense we make of it. But my question is, beyond those two ways of seeing the world and however many others there are, um, beyond those two ways of being in the world, with the world, is there another that transcends and includes each of those? Can the limited ever approach the limitless? Or is it a futile effort? I mean, I guess we can, in the case of heart cultures, we can commune with and we can co-create dances and songs and uh, carry out instruction and that sort of thing. Be in the flow. But can we be the flow? Because aren't we also that? If there is the limitless and approaching it is futile, and yet that limitlessness is also you, what would you do with it in your repression of it? In your compacting as much of the unlimited into your limitations as possible? What would you do? You'd make stuff up! Wouldn't you? You'd make up thought constructs, definitions, rituals. You'd give voice to it in a way that evokes a feeling. You'd capture a crumb and you'd call it a cookie. Right? And then argue over the crumbs. Whose crumbs are better? What's a tastier crumb, this or that?
tastier, more real. What's more real? We keep transcending and transcending as we learn and we learn. This is our lives. And we say that this is what our lives are for, many of us. Let's question that. Because if the limitless, which is sacred, cannot be gotten to with the tools of the limited, can be as understood as it is obscured by our limitations, can be transmuted into some sort of gold, but which is not purely the sacred, then we have to change, not just be transformed by the limitless, by the sacred, not just be expressions of the sacred, not just be expressing the sacred as ourselves and then go about our normal lives. We must be that. We must transform into the sacred. We must be limitlessness. And if the tools of the limited are thought, our doings, reactions, noise, then we must be silence. We must be stillness. Not the false stillness of answers, which forever lead to more questions, to then be answered, to then be questioned, to then be answered, which is movement. But the stillness of mystery, the stillness of the question that has no answer. The stillness of nothingness. Nothingness is that mystery with a capital M. It's the concept that exists prior to and inclusive of the brain, the thought constructs, the definitions of nothingness. I mean, self-evidently, right? (laughs) We appear to be somethingness. We appear to be substance. We appear to be physical form. We appear to be, to some of us, a formless awareness, a soul, a spirit, an Atman, or whatever. But we are also that which transcends and includes all of the somethings. We're nothingness. We're limitlessness. We're the sacred nature we've been interacting with all along. And we self-identify that way. Not as the ego who says, I am that, ha ha ha. But legitimately... And that self-identity of no self, of nothingness, of the great almighty pure consciousness that exists prior to and inclusive of all consciousness, sees, can all of that nothing shine through the something vessels that are you and me? Can we undo our definitions? Can we unravel them all from whichever mind we exist in the heart mind, the brain mind who's there when we're healthy, when we're whole, when we're undone. 